I am looking at the the people who are trying to hide serious assets, but it all comes down to hiring somebody who knows how to do that. Because I know how to be a chapter seven trustee. I don't know how to be a fraud examiner. I don't know how to be a friend. You're listening account. to Jim Lanick, an attorney and bankruptcy panel trustee. Welcome to the Fraud Fighter Podcast. There are a lot of people who can do the paperwork part of it. There are a lot of people who are good with the witness interviews. Uh, there aren't as many people uh, that can put it all together. In this episode, we discuss the role of a bankruptcy trustee and forensic accountant in the bankruptcy process, what training, skills, certifications are needed to assist the court in finding hidden assets and income, and how to be successful as a forensic accountant for the bankruptcy court. He is a Chapter 7 panel trustee for the Middle District of North Carolina. He is also a partner at Waltrip LLP. He is a graduate of the University of Denver. He's also an avid golf fan. Welcome, Jim Lanick, to the Fraud Fighter Podcast. Great to be here. A little birdie told me that you're such a big golf fan that you actually work at the PGA Tour. I do. I am a volunteer out at the Wyndham Championship every year. It was a little reduced this year because of the COVID, but uh, I have been volunteering out there since 2003. And then uh, in 2007, I was the general chairman, so I was the head volunteer out at the golf tournament. So when you volunteer, what are you doing? Uh, What I do uh, most of the time is I work in the will call tent, helping, you know, just doing the will call stuff. Uh, arranging tickets, handing tickets out to folks, making sure they get where they need to go. Um, but the fun part, and that's fun, but the fun part is uh, I'm a starter on number one, usually on Thursday morning. Uh, so I get to hand the players their cards, their scorecards, and do the announcements, announce their name, where they're from, and act as the uh, official start. That's a lot of fun. That is actually pretty cool. Do you have a favorite player down on the tour? Uh, yeah, I have to say Zach Johnson. He and I are born in the same town, Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And, you know, there just aren't a lot of Iowans on the PGA Tour. He may be the only one. Um, <laughs> and so to have won uh, two majors like he's done with a lack of laugh, trying to, try to think of a way to be uh, uh, gracious, but with a lack of length that everybody else has got yeah. uh, for him, for him to win two majors is just huge. Hometown boy, I got I to pick Zach Johnson. You got to pull for him. I got it. Got to do it. I know that your specialty is bankruptcy. Yes. One of the things I'd like to talk about is bankruptcy and fraud and forensic accounting and how they are need each other. What are some of the common types of bankruptcy cases that are out there? As in, I know there's Chapter 7, Chapter 13, but when I say Chapter 7, Chapter 13, most people have a clue what we're talking about. So just give me a rundown of types of bankruptcy cases that are out there. The, the three most common types of of bankruptcies are chapter seven, chapter 13, and chapter 11. So a chapter seven is any liquidation, either of a person or a company. So that's somebody files a chapter seven, whether it's a person or a company, they throw all their assets in the ring and uh, the chapter seven trustee, you know, that's me, will come in, look at their assets, turn those assets into money to the extent that I can and distribute that money uh, out to creditors uh, in accordance with the priorities set by the bankruptcy code. 
So that's a chapter seven. So in a company, company does not have exemptions. A person, though, is going to have exemptions. And the, and the most common exemption, the most two most common exemptions are your house and a car. And those are typically set by state law. So, for instance, uh, a, an individual in North Carolina has a $35,000 homestead exemption uh, and a $3,500 exemption for their car. So that's money that, you know, so to the extent that there is some equity in a house, for instance, that it, those exemptions will eat into that equity and may prevent a Chapter 7 trustee from liquidating that asset. Companies don't have exemptions, but a lot of times what you'll find in business cases is everything's leaned up to some secured creditor, so there's nothing left to do. So, But if there is, there's if there's assets free and clear, sell them, distribute the money. A chapter 13 is a reorganization of somebody who has regular income. So you have to have a job and you have to have regular income to be a, a chapter 13. And those are the plans that you, they go from three to five years and you pay money into the plan. And there's a chapter 13 trustee that, again, takes that cash, distributes it out to the creditors. Chapter 11 again, is a reorganization, much like a 13, but it is a more complex, typically the more complex reorganization. If you owe too much money, if you have too many assets, you may not actually be able to file a chapter 13 if you're an individual. You have to file a chapter 11. Companies, if they want to reorganize, have to file a chapter 11. Uh, the plans in that case can be Custom made, whereas in a chapter 13, they're pretty standard across the board. The only thing that really changes is the monthly payment. Chapter 11s can be as creative as you want to make them. And the issue with that customizability is they're usually much more expensive and they take longer than a typical chapter 13. So uh, with everything, there's trade-offs. Uh, but those are the big three that you're going to see most of the time. Uh, but those are the main types. So the bankruptcy law is based upon federal law. However, the exemptions is based upon state law? Correct. So Texas has a different, I know they have like the homestead. You can keep your homestead, but in North Carolina, it's slightly different because it's, the state's different. But the federal bankruptcy law is nationwide, of course. That's correct. The, the bankruptcy code, the general framework of any bankruptcy is the United States Bankruptcy Code and the federal rules of bankruptcy procedure. So those are the two, and I'm looking at my book that, that has those in them. Uh, I never go anywhere without it. Those create the skeleton and the framework which you build a bankruptcy case on. But state law governs almost everything else because when you get right down to it, you're talking about uh, bankruptcies are talking about money and property and turning property into money. Most of the time, that's that is governed by your interest, the debtor's interest or a creditor's interest in that property or that money is governed by state law. Oh, OK. So so the Uniform Commercial Code, the exemptions, uh, real property law, all of that is the state law in the place where typically where the debtor is uh, or if it is multi-state where the property is um so if, if you've got a north carolina north carolina debtor owns a lake house at smith mountain lake virginia law would govern 
that Smith Mountain Lake property, but it would be built upon the foundation of the federal rules and the federal bankruptcy code. So when someone declares bankruptcy, it's a federal judge that's going to be overseeing all this, not a state judge. But there are certain rules regarding the state that apply. Exactly. Bankruptcy attorneys kind of have to be jacks of all trades uh, just because you've got to know a little bit about a lot um, because every situation is different. But it's typically going to be state law uh, that governs these property interests. So when you are a bankruptcy trustee, what role do you play in the bankruptcy proceedings? What do you, what do, you do? As a trustee, when, when somebody files bankruptcy, immediately, as soon as the clerk takes, well, as soon as the clerk takes the money for the filing fee, but stamps on that petition, and it's all figuratively now because it's all online, but stamps on that petition filed, a bankruptcy estate comes into to being it. All of the property, with certain exceptions, but the vast majority of the property of the debtor is going to go into that, that estate and a trustee comes into existence to administer that property. And as a Chapter 7 trustee, it's my job. My first job is to, is to look out for the creditors to reduce any property I can to money. Um, because it's all about the money. As a trustee, you're not a federal employee. So how do you get put into the mix? I get put into the mix. I'm on the panel. Chapter seven trustees are on what we call panels. And each district, federal court district, has its own panel. In the middle district of North Carolina, where, where I am, uh, that panel is determined by the United States Bankruptcy Administrator for the Middle District of North Carolina. He is the one who picks the people to be on the panel. So you get on an approved list. I get on approval list, yep. And we get re-upped every year. It's a one-year appointment from January to December. It is a panel that's a, a semi-permanent. There's not a lot of turnover. It's one of these things that it's good to have some experience, and we'll probably talk about some of that. Uh, it's good to have kind of an eye and have seen a thing or two uh, in these cases. It typically stays fairly. It's a small club. It's a small club. It with is low a small turnover. Club. With low turnover, and and that's kind of the way it is. I'm on a national uh, trade group of uh, Chapter Seven trustees, and it's the same people. People either love it and will do it forever, or they realize it's not for them and get out relatively quickly. <laughs> so as a as a trustee, you really work for the court then, and you are representative of the court, I guess, with the state, would you not be? Yes. As a Chapter 7 trustee, you have a lot of people tugging at your coattail to get some attention. You have the court and the judge thinking that you need to act one way or do a certain thing. You have the bankruptcy administrator doing the same thing. You've got all the creditors who are trying to get a piece of the action. You've got the debtor who's trying to keep as much as he or she can, he, she, or it can. Debtor's attorney say everyone wants a little bit of, you get tugged in a lot of different directions. Uh, But ultimately, your main allegiance, again, this is to distribute money to the creditors. I think my my primary allegiance is to the court system. I mean, to to the system in general, to do it right. Um, Because the the bankruptcy system is a very process-oriented system. You do things the way the code says to do them. But you do them for the benefit of creditors. You're trying to get the best benefit 
the most bang and the most buck to those creditors as you can. If an individual wants to commit fraud, bankruptcy fraud in particular, and they have to fill out an application, suppose to list out all their assets and all their income, it gets filed with the federal clerk. It goes in front of, I guess, a trustee like you. Right. What are some of the common fraudulent activities that you're seeing or can be done in bankruptcy? Ultimately, the, the goal would be to get all the debts wiped out, but I, yet I keep my asset, my income that's hidden so that so the court does not know about it and the creditors don't know about it. Let me take take that in steps. The first thing I do, one of the things as a trustee I do is, like you say, they've got to fill out their schedules. Uh, and the schedule AB, uh, A slash B, now they call it, is a listing of the debtor's assets, all of the debtor's assets. And that includes any kind of interest in property. So the easy ones, cash, house, car, jet ski, that sort of thing. But as well as a little more, as the more esoteric, if they own a business, you know, that those membership interests in an LLC, stock in, an, in, a, in a corporation, partnership interests, all of that needs to get listed on the schedules. And the first thing that I do for every case is review those schedules. If it is a situation where it's a the formerly wealthy, as as we like to call them, because by by the time they get to a chapter seven, you know, they're most of that wealth is gone. But uh, a lot of times, I will also ask for tax returns and several years of bank statements and financial statements, and and start putting the pieces together because ultimately it's a materiality uh, analysis. If you've got somebody who really has nothing but didn't list that lawnmower uh, that's worth about a hundred bucks. That's, that's not the kind of thing that I'm looking at. I am looking at the, the people who are trying to hide serious assets and the way that they can do that is one, just not listing them. Say they've got a, an art collection and uh, they either list it as art and put some low number on it without any kind of, any kind of detail or they don't list it at all. So that's one way they can they can hide it. They can do pre-petition transfers to family friends. Uh, they're supposed to disclose disclose that sort of thing. They can fail to disclose bank accounts. They can fail to disclose any kind of asset. They can put assets in relatives' names, spouses' names, kids' names, friends' names, and sometimes these folks don't even know they've got them. Any way that you can think to keep an asset off of that schedule, somebody has come up with it and done it. Uh, I said earlier, it's good to have people who have seen a thing or two. And I've only been a trustee for seven or eight years, so I don't claim to be the most experienced trustee in the world. But you get you start to see a pattern and you can kind of get an inkling of somebody who may not be doing anything fraudulent, but may require a little more attention. Those are typically the formerly wealthy. You just start asking for information and just trying to run down every lead you can at that point. Uh, and, you know, this is all sort of at the beginning of the case, trying to get the get your arms around what's going on. So when you're looking at this and you're evaluating the bankruptcy petitions, it could range from, like you said, the very simple ones where someone's got medical bills, no assets, really doesn't have anything. That's that's kind of easier to do. Then you get, like I said, like the former wealthy. 
how does the bankruptcy trustee, because your time's worth money, how do you get paid this whole process? Well, I get paid by, on a, a, it's a straight commission. It's a sliding scale. So for instance, I get, and it's a straight commission on every dollar that I distribute to parties in interest, typically creditors. So I think it's 25% for the first $5,000 and goes all the way up to 2% for a million and, and above. So it's a straight commission. That's how I get paid. So yeah, my time is money, but I also have to invest that time. One, because it's my duty under the code to do it. And it's my job. But I also need to invest the time so I can find the assets. If those, if I think those assets or if there are assets that are being concealed or there may not be full disclosure, you know, I need to get into that and, and take some time and spend some time to make sure that, A, there's nothing there. It's just smoke or whether there is fine. That's how I get paid is finding money. I have an incentive to find it. If a business owner wants to commit some type of bankruptcy fraud, I can imagine Let's assume they have a, and I'll just make this up, a shoe store. They just buy a bunch of shoes and the creditors owed some money. They decided to take those shoes and put it in a second store down across the street and say, oops, I'm bankrupt on the first store because I just think it's selling shoes. When in fact, the shoes went to another store. When the bankruptcy court finds out about this or when you find out about this, what do they do? In an instance like that, where it's a transfer or a concealment by a person like that. My remedies as a trustee, I have a big stick. I can actually sue that debtor to have their discharge either revoked uh, if their discharge has already been granted or to deny their discharge in the first place. And discharge meaning the debt's canceled. Forgiveness of all debts. That is the whole point of a, of a chapter seven and really the whole point of a chapter 13 is to get your debts discharged. That means you don't owe them anymore. That is the biggest stick and the biggest remedy that a, uh, a chapter seven trustee has. If kind of the secondary remedy is I can make what's known as a criminal referral. And what I will do is if I think it warrants it, make a referral, write up a little memo uh, about what happened and saying to the bankruptcy administrators are here, I think this needs to go upstairs to the U.S. Attorney's Office uh, for investigation for bankruptcy crimes. Because it, it meets the, the violations of the criminal code, that bankruptcy fraud, if they do A, B, C, or D, this somehow fits the bill, including its material. It's not just, like you said, like a, a lawnmower not being disclosed. Exactly. And that's you know, ultimately, that's not up to me. That's that's up at the U.S. Attorney's Office. But a lot of times we'll get started by a referral, which the trustee will make to the bankruptcy administrator and then the bankruptcy administrator sends it. And it, literally, in our case, in the Middle District of North Carolina, it's literally upstairs. He'll run it upstairs. And then that's where the criminal investigation will typically commence. So in this situation, you would just pass the ball and the ball is now in a, in a different court, especially in the criminal court. Let the federal prosecutors deal with it. Yeah, let the prosecutors deal with it. I, I you know, my big, like I said, my biggest stick is the, the the denial of discharge. So a lot of times those are going on on concurrent tracks. I am fighting uh, with the debtor on the discharge, on the denial of discharge action, while at the same time there may be a criminal investigation going on at the same time. You know, it's not something that has to happen consecutively. If I, if, if I see enough to, to go after somebody for their discharge, nine times out of 10, I'm going to write one of those referrals. It may not go anywhere. 
obviously that's U.S. Attorney's Office and the prosecutors and the investigators up there. But where there's enough smoke for a discharge complaint, I think there's enough smoke for a criminal referral. So when you receive these bankruptcy petitions and you're reviewing it and you're scratching your head going, this doesn't sound right, or there may be a lack of records or things are missing and there's, there's, there appears to be a lot of smoke and you haven't seen the fire yet. I'm assuming that you have to bring in some type of professional help, just like a, like a realtor would sell a piece of property to creditors on your behalf. You have to bring in CPAs, fraud examiners, somebody to come in here and say, is this really going on? And so how does that work? How does that help you? Or do you actually do that? Oh, absolutely. I do that. If it's a situation where there is the moving or concealing of assets, especially cash, you know, if I could have done, if I could do math, I probably would have been an orthodontist. <laughs> so I, I get those people that do this for a living, the, the certified fraud examiners, in a perfect world, I'm going to find a, a CFA to do this, but at least a CPA to help me understand stand what's going on. And I will. I those are professionals. Uh, if you can see my air quotes, professionals under the bankruptcy code, uh, and I have to get those that engagement approved by the court. And uh, that fraud examiner is going to come in. It may be easy to tell a little war story. I had a case uh, not too long ago, maybe a year and a half if that long ago, where uh, it was a business, it was sole proprietorship, and there were seven or eight bank accounts, some seven or eight operating accounts, and money was just going back and forth between all of them in no particular, what I could perceive as no particular pattern or rhyme or reason. There's no economic reason for this many bank accounts and this many transfers. Exactly. I just could not figure out Asked the debtor about it. They didn't have any particularly good answer, I thought, at the time. And I hired a, uh, a forensic accountant to come in and try to piece all of this together. Uh, she didn't have, this debtor didn't have all the records. So, you know, had to go to the banks. And that led to some more bank accounts. And because you could see transfers out to other banks uh, that weren't, that we didn't have any records for. Ultimately, this is one of those ones where it was just smoke we started unraveling all these threads and it turned out it was just smoke. She was just in over her head, had started. It was a, um, a hobby that turned into a business and she was just in over her head and just didn't know how to run it. But I've had all, an almost identical situation where you've got all these bank accounts, money going back and forth and you start unraveling those threads. And then all of a sudden you find either a smoking gun or the treasure trove. You're going to find that bank account where all that money landed, or you're going to find that mattress, or you're going to find that lockbox where all the cash is, or you're going to find the asset that they bought with it. And I've had those too, but it all comes down to hiring somebody who knows how to do that. Because I know how to be a chapter seven trustee. I don't know how to be a fraud examiner. I don't know how to be a forensic accountant. That's not me. And if I, if I try to do that, I'm just going to screw it up. <laughs> well, we all have our limitations and our strengths and weaknesses. And trust me, I would never try to be a uh, Chapter Seven panel trustee either. <laughs> that's right. As a friend no accountant, other... I can I can follow the money. That's, so that's the big right. deal. You got to know your limitations. What training certifications do you think are necessary to assist the court? Because because I'm assuming that the judge, if they're saying we approve Jim Lanick of your recommendation here. 
that there is a lot of oversight by this judge about the forensic accountant, what they're doing, how they're going to get paid, how long they're going to work on this project. There's no blank check for all this, that there's going to have to be some type of professional certifications or training that the judge is okay with and you're okay with. Yes. Yeah. And it depends. I, I hate to give that lawyer an answer. It kind of depends on the nature of the fraud or the suspected fraud or the suspected smoke. Uh, if it's if 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 there's some tax issues, I'm going to find somebody who typically I'm going to f- I want somebody who's who's got forensic accounting training at at least and at best is a certified fraud examiner. And you know that's you know those those letters behind a a person's name are going to be are going to be important because you're right. I have to go to the court and say I want to hire this person with these qualifications to do this task. And you've got to be able to show the court that those qualifications are suited to this task. Right. And it can't be your, your next door neighbor who uh, just happened to a little bit of bookkeeping. Exactly. Say, I want, I want to hire him to find this multi-million dollar fraud. The judge is going to look at you kind of crazy. That's, that's, that's exactly right. It doesn't even have to be, that crazy. It could be a situation where you could be a CPA, but all that CPA does is tax returns. That, they, that's great. They may do tax returns backwards and forward to go through that complex unraveling and trying to deconstruct the web. Doing tax returns isn't going to teach you how to do that. So just you know, just CPA is not enough, uh, and CPA might not even be required. It's, it's that combination of experience and training. That may have led to a CPA, but maybe not. But somebody who is good at the forensics, good at good at the fraud examination, good with people, because ultimately, you know, this person is going to whoever this the uh, professional I hire is going to be talking to people and is going to be investigating. That's good. You're right because witness interviews are key. You can follow the money, but you got to find out why this check was sent or why this money was deposited. Right. Because you can look, you can move all the paper around you want, but that's never 100% of the story. So it's going to talk to the debtor, uh, relatives in, in the right circumstances, friends, business associates, and just doing that, you know, that beat cop work of going out and just running all of this stuff to ground. So you've got to be able to have that, that, you know, Liam Neeson, very specialized set of skills. It is a very special set of skills. There aren't a lot of people that there are a lot of people who can do the paperwork part of it. There are a lot of people who are good with the witness interviews. Uh, There aren't as many people uh, that can put it all together. Um, Going back to my original analysis, it was ultimately the witness interviews that made us realize that this person was just in over her head. She just had no idea. Looking at the paper, you thought, sure enough, I, this is clearly, uh, there's no other reason to do all this. Well, it turns out, you know, sometimes Occam's razor is right and it's just incompetence. But I got to run them all the ground too. So I got to get the professionals in there. What do you look for when a case comes to you or you you hire a forensic accountant or a fraud examiner and they get the books and records and they look at it and they hand it to you? Under what circumstances would you refer this case as a possible criminal investigation? Well, if the, if the fraud examiner comes back and says, there's fire here, I'm almost certainly going to do that. I'm going to take that examiner's report 
do a quick memo, throw the report on the back of it and hand it up because I don't want to be in the in the position of making the determination that this is or isn't a bankruptcy crime because that's not again that's not my bailiwick. I'm I'm the trustee, uh, just like I hired an expert to look at the uh, to do the, do the fraud examination. I want the experts to determine whether this is a crime. I feel it's better to over refer than under refer. I guess based upon that criteria, it, it, when it comes to hiring a forensic accountant or a fraud examiner, they should. Know a general idea of what even is worth a criminal prosecution for. I mean, because I, I I can see, yeah, I, I ran everything down, but it's a hundred dollar lawnmower we missed. Okay, oh, you and I well know that we're not going to do that. Right. But they should have been able to know what willfulness looks like to where that. Hey, listen, this looks like a willful violation of bankruptcy fraud uh, or bankruptcy code, and therefore it's probably criminal prosecution. I would think that would be a a helpful skill set. Yes. Knowing what's going to fly, what's not going to fly. Right. And that gets back to, uh, again, experience and training, because, I mean, you said it willful. Most of the time, I'm not concerned with the screw ups. Somebody made a mistake. Somebody did something negligently or just didn't know any better or made a mistake. Right. Most of the time, I don't care about it, unless it's a huge mistake. I'm usually not all that concerned. Oh, I'm concerned with it. Don't get me wrong. But are the true honest mistakes going to lead to a me wanting to go after their discharge? Nah, maybe not. But as soon as you start doing things on purpose or mm-hmm. with recklessness or you just didn't you didn't care what the result was going to be, as soon as you start getting into that, and that's where that examiner can help out is determining whether or not Okay, let's say there's fire here. Was that an accidental fire or was this arson? Right. Is this sloppiness or is this willfulness or is this actually just abusing the system? I I can see sometimes situations where, and I've seen this before, a guy goes out, gets a credit card. He just decides that he's going to go to Disney World or whatever vacation Mm -hmm. plate he wants to go to. And then, oh, by the way, you know, a week later when he gets back, he files bankruptcy. How do you handle people who are abusing the system that way. But you can tell it's not just, hey, it led to this conclusion. It's like this guy actually, in a sense, or let's say gal, this person accelerated it, you know, knew they were going to declare bankruptcy, so they went all in with their chips. You're right. (laughs) Got as many credit cards as they could and and lived it up. Uh, Yeah, we will. I mean, that's the investigation. And you just rarely does the debtor cop to it and say, yeah, you got me in the Perry Mason style. And that's where the examiner can come in and say, there's no other conclusion that this was done on purpose. The timing is such and such. What what it was spent on was such and such. I've seen the cases where somebody has gone out and gotten a credit card right before and spent it on those luxury items, the trips, the the boats, that sort of thing. But I've also seen somebody who went and got a credit card so they could buy groceries. You've got to put it all together and look at the big picture. Take all those different tiles essentially and turn it into a mosaic that's an actual picture as opposed to just a jumble of different shapes and that's where that's where that that examiner can help me say now put it all together and it's clearly intentional there's just no other conclusion or just or the other words say yeah it's just it's it was just a timing issue not anything nefarious just timing and i want to know either way obviously 
Have you ever had a case that had an effect on you? It will always stick in your memory forever. I do. I have a couple. The one, the heartbreaking one, I had a guy who lost his job and had been without a job for months, but got a job. And to kind of celebrate, went to visit his family in Virginia. As he's visiting with his family, has a stroke up in Virginia, away from his house, and ends up in the hospital for months, millions of dollars of medical bills, never quite the same, lose, you know, loses that new job. And it's just one of these things, you know, this is what bankruptcy is for, is for this honest but unfortunate debtor. He was honest as the day is long and just had the worst luck. And that one has always kind of stuck in my mind as the one where, you know, if this is what bankruptcy is for, is to help these people. Because otherwise, how is this 50-something-year-old man going to dig out of $2 million of medical bills? He's never going to, yeah. It's never going to happen. So there's that one. The one, given we're talking about fraud, I had this case that ended up resulting in a conviction for bankruptcy crimes, and I think tax fraud. You know, it was just one of those... You get a feeling, and again, it kind of came down to there's just a lot of bank accounts, and there's money kind of going back and forth, and you just keep pulling threads, and one of those threads is attached to something. Uh, but in that case, it was far too much for me to do, and we hired a fraud examiner. He ended up helping us unravel all those. That is the one that has made me always have in the back of my mind, as honest as people may seem. You've got, to, you've got to try to take a step back, not let your attitude about somebody color it one way or the other. Look at what's in front of you objectively and start running everything to ground. Just do your job and you never know what you're going to find. It may be nothing like this one I just had, or it may end up putting somebody in jail for bankruptcy crimes. And that's, you know, that, that, was, a, that was a big lesson. That was a big lesson. If I'm listening well to you, it's, it's, he had assets. He just didn't put on the bankruptcy petition. He did. That's right. There was there was income or assets just weren't there, and then when you start pulling the strings, you find out oh it's right. there, and then you find it's there, and then maybe someone lied about it or didn't disclose it. There's, there's right. it's not just an oopsie. I had fifty fifteen dollars in your bank account. I forgot to talk about it. It's like oopsie. I had like a million dollars, or I had this asset, or or by the way, I've been depositing money in this account this whole time and failed to talk to you exactly. About it. Yes. Uh, and that was <laughs> yeah. At the beginning, you never know what the case is going to be like. Throughout my career, I have fought being that old grizzled cynic who just thinks everybody's crooks and and just goes through life like that. But what it did teach me is it's good to be wary at being the case because you don't know where it's going to end up. You don't know what you're going to find. So take the steps for each case, even if you don't think anything is going to be there. Most of the time, there's not. 99% of the cases, probably, of the cases I've got end up just being routine as routine can be. But it's that 1%, and then one, those 1% are, are important enough that you just, and you don't know what they are until you go through the steps. So you have to go through the steps on every case. And that, was the, that is probably the biggest takeaway from that case. Um, because otherwise, had we not gone through the steps at the beginning, because it took years for that to unravel. Uh, it finally did. We just kept pulling strings. It came out. And, I, and if memory serves, I think it was, the thing that really kind of tipped it over the edge for me was there was some cruise. He purchased something, uh, purchased a cruise, uh, and there was money that went out uh, from one particular bank account to a cruise. 
The cruise will get the you every time. The cruise will get you every time. Don't go to a, don't, never go on a cruise. Don't go to a cruise and find out later on that you paid it with a secret. That's right. Account. Exactly. So, so that's, that is the, that is the one that has really uh, stuck with me about how people can manipulate the system and they're never as smart as they think they are. Are there any resources or training that have helped you on your journey, especially when, when it comes to uncovering fraud? experience talking, having cases like that and talking to the examiners that we've gotten, a lot of it's kind of on the job training. Have I had any formal training? There's not a lot, uh, to be honest with you. I'm trying to, I've, I've been trying to think of some of the uh, continuing education classes. And again, you're trying to teach uh, a very specific, specialized, sophisticated skill set to a bunch of lawyers the bank, you know, bankruptcy trustees are typically lawyers, some CPAs, but teaching these people a very specialized, sophisticated uh, skill set in a 50-minute class typically doesn't work. Most of the, the experience that I've got, these examiners that I've worked with, because, you know, one of the things, again, try not to be the, the grizzled cynic, but, you know, never trust anybody. Never take them at face value. Trust but verify. And, you know, that has that has served me well, especially on the on the ones that look a little bit squirrely. Uh, You know, I can do my own kind of intro due diligence to see if there's if I think there's anything worth running down. Uh, But those are the big lessons that I've learned and been taught in my career as a chapter seven trustee. What would be your recommendation for someone who wanted to be a fraud examiner or forensic accountant? that decides, you know, bankruptcy is my, my jam. I like <laughs> bankruptcy. I like, I, I like this type of stuff, you know, but I want to be a forensic accountant for the bankruptcy court. I want to be that guy that gets the phone call. <laughs> right. Uh, what would be your recommendation for someone who wants to be that person? Well, first you want to be the, the best fraud examiner you can and get all the training and be the best fraud examiner that there is for fraud examiners and, and be the best forensic accountant and get all the training and, and do that. And once you've done that, or as you're doing that, if you think, yeah, bankruptcy, that's, that's where all the glory is. <laughs> that may or may not be true, but uh, I'll let somebody get disabused of that notion when they, when they come to it. You know, talk to, the, talk, talk to the people that are on the panel. Talk to the trustees. Talk to the bankruptcy administrators. They're all on the website for the bankruptcy courts. You can go on and find contact information for all of the bankruptcy administrators and all of the panel trustees in the entire state. Just talk to them because I know as as a as a trustee, I have a stable of professionals that I like to work. At, whether it's as you, as you mentioned, realtors to sell a house, auctioneers to sell cars, and and other kind of tangible assets, uh, the goofy asset buyers, uh, you know, not goofy buyers, but the the buyers of goofy assets. You know, there's people who will who will buy anything. But I, but it's also good to have a stable of fraud examiners and the people who can do this kind of thing when it comes up. It's rare, uh, but when you've got, for instance, in the middle districts, there's eight panel trustees. You just increased your case size by eight. There's I think eight or ten in the Western district and probably 10 or 12 in the Eastern district. So, you know, between that, that's 30 trustees and you start, you know, it's a percentages. You've got to have the cases to examine. Uh, and it's just more likely that if, that if you have a relationship with as many trustees as you can, 
uh, it's more likely that you're going to get that call or the or the bankruptcy administrator. If it's something that, you know, since the bankruptcy administrator knows everybody, uh, it's good to let the bankruptcy administrator's office know that that you're out there and uh, looking for cases to look at. Aside from your parents and your career as a Chapter 7 panel trustee, who has influenced you most? I would probably say my high school football coach, Don Brown. And why is that? He taught me, and he wasn't he wasn't one of these yelling and screaming kind of football coaches. He was very kind of new school, just quiet. But he taught me that I could do anything I wanted, except play tight end. I wanted to play tight end. He wouldn't let me play tight end. But uh, he said, no, you're too good uh, offensive lineman, and you don't have good enough hands. So between those two things, uh, he said, no, you're not going to play tight end. But he taught me to that I could do anything if I worked hard enough and I wanted it bad enough. And that has served me well because, because then you look at things. All right, is, is what I want something that I'm willing to work hard for or not? And if it is, great. If it's not, I'm not going to do it because if, because I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you know, just kind of shortchange it. But if it's worth fighting for and working hard for, work hard for it and do it and throw all your energy into it and do it. It's amazing how sports can, especially for a young man or young teenager, a good coach has a lasting influence. Oh, absolutely. Whether they, they they may not even know it at the time and the student or student may not even know it at the time, but a couple years later, they're like, you know what? I learned a lot. I just didn't know it at that point. I don't think I realized it until I was probably 40. Uh, you know, because I'm a you know, slow learner because you only learn the lessons when you look back on them. And it's good to be reflective. And I realize that sports is different in that you have such a it's such an intimate relationship with a particular teacher because coaches are essentially teachers, teachers, and motivators. But unlike my English teacher, for instance, who was probably a close number two, I only I was with her three hours a week in class, but my coaches, I saw him, you know, I saw, I see them three, four hours a day, every day, all year. So it's, you, you, they just had the opportunity to make such a huge impact. And they also have constant feedback too. A teacher with 20 students can't give you feedback every 10 seconds about, Hey, right. put your feet up, put your feet down. What are you doing? Right. The coach is there and he can almost see you when you want to quit. They can actually sit there and say, no, don't do that. Get up and do it again. That's right. That's right. And versus write that paragraph one more time, but better. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And, you know, and what I realized is that he was not trying to make us better football players. He was trying to make us better people. And it was just football was the was the medium by which he did that. And and that's and that was exactly the attitude um, Dr. Yates, my, my English teacher, who was, she wanted us to learn Shakespeare and Shaw and, and that, but what she was, that was the, the medium by which she made us better people. That lesson and that realization, which I, which I didn't realize until long into my adulthood, I think that's the difference between the true impact people and just a good coach or a good teacher who are, is just focus on the subject matter. You know, they're, it's the bigger picture that they're trying to mold you. 
I'm not trying to disparage any English teachers out there. <laughs> I, 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 I do, although I, I do remember my English teacher ma- did make me a critical thinker and yeah. made me sit there and say, what does this really mean? Right. And it, it, it can be, uh, does it have a different meaning to it? And I, it did make me look, look deeper into the English language about what, what are they really communicating at the end of the day? Right. But, right. Yeah. Yeah. And, English teachers are bad. That's, that's right. But, you know, as a lawyer, words are my life. That's that is very true, very true. Especially in forensic accounting, we're talking about. I had another guest. We talked about how the articulation of your of your position is paramount. Right. You have to write in, speak, yes, well, yes. especially in court and writing and and making your oral presentation like to you or to the judge, going, "Hey, this is the reason why we got to do this," and it's very important to art- take the facts and articulate it well. Right, and and it goes back to you know what are the, some of the skill sets that somebody getting wanting to get into this can do. You know, join Toastmasters or something that makes you speak in front of other people, because ultimately, if it if it gets to it, that examiner is going to be put on the stand, examined and cross examined. And that's yes. a very stressful, uh, no matter how many times somebody has done it, it's a very stressful position to be in. And the more comfortable you are speaking in front of other people on your feet, the better you're going to be. But not only that, but there's so many times where, yeah, you made a mistake and they found out about it. How are you going to react to it? Because we all make mistakes. You know, no one, no one's going to bat a, a, a bat a thousand on the witness stand. It just doesn't happen. They're going to get their points across. The defense is, or the prosecution, whichever side you're on. Right. Yeah, it's going to happen. It's going to happen, and you just have to roll with it. You know, sometimes the worst thing you can do is start getting defensive and arguing. Take it personal. Take it personal. Yeah. yeah but you're right. Just take your lumps. You know, some. You're, you're right. You're not going to bat a thousand. You're not going to make every shot. You are not going to make every block. You're not going to make every tackle. Yeah. <laughs> Going back to those football metaphor, those sports metaphors, you know, if you're a cornerback, you got to have short memory. You can get burned on one play, but you got to be talking smack walking back. <laughs> <laughs> you got to forget about it. Uh, that's very true. You just got to have that confidence to say, yeah, if that's a mistake, I made it. You know, roll it. Looking back at your career, what was the biggest mistake you made or, or the lost opportunity? Oh, you know. I have made it a point in my life to never look back and think, ah, I should have. Because I love my life the way it is. And I'm always worried about, well, if that had changed, if I'd done something different, would my life be? But that said, you know, I, I, I had an opportunity early in my career in North Carolina, you know, because I was out in, in Colorado, practicing in Colorado for about seven years. And then I came out. Uh, and basically kind of reinvented my practice out here when we moved to get closer to family. And I had an opportunity to, to immediately go into bankruptcy. I fought it for a long time. It didn't end up happening for, for probably about five or it was inevitable, but it didn't end up happening for about five or six years. I kind of dabbled in it for those five or six years. And I wish I had just kind of jumped right into it and done it. I, I don't know if my life would be any different, but because I love practicing bankruptcy law, I love practicing law in general. Uh, and I wish I had gotten into it sooner and not had to get dragged in kicking and screaming. No, I, I completely understand. A lot of times we look back going, ah, if I just invested earlier, if I just got the education earlier, if I just, you know, did this earlier, where I've been 
you know, two years ahead of what I am now or five years ahead of what I am. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, it was just a lot. I don't want to say it was wasted time, but it was not time that that time could have been much more valuable. What was holding you back? I had it in my head that I wanted to be a corporate lawyer because that's what I had done in, in Colorado. I'd been a kind of a corporate governance uh, securities guy. I thought that's what I wanted to do when I got out here. And I just tried to fit that into my practice with the firm that I, that I was with when I got out here. It just didn't work. It just it wasn't the right place. It wasn't the right time. It wasn't the right people. The firm that I was at had a bankruptcy practice, and I just kind of did it because I needed something to do. And if I had jumped in with both feet, you're like, uh, like you say, you know, where you know, I'd be five or six years ahead of where I am right now. Instead of saying, "Well, I'll do it just because I need something to do," you know, that's not necessarily quite the right attitude. Then it goes back goes goes back to the coaching. You know, if you're gonna do it, do it. And if, but if you're not, don't. Uh, you know, make that decision. And I just kind of wish I'd made that decision to, you know, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. I had some experience in law enforcement where we enter into a house. Either you go in or you stay out, but you can't stand in the doorway. Standing in the doorway is a no no. (laughs) (laughs) Either go in and take care of business or stay outside and, and, you know, help control traffic or crowd control, but don't stand in the doorway. Yeah. That's right. It's not going to work. That's right. It never works. Right or wrong, do something. Do something. All right, Jim, this is great. You ready for the final four questions? Yes, ready for the final four. All right, final four. What is your biggest motivation now? My biggest motivation right now, professionally, is I'm at a new firm. I've only been there for about a year and a half, and the and it itself is a new firm. It's only about three and a half years old, and the opportunity to build and grow a firm in our own image is more exciting than I thought it was going to be. I love practicing law any, anyway, but it has really re-energized my enthusiasm for practicing law. So that's that's my biggest motivation right now. Number two, what book or books have changed your life or thinking? Are you, are you familiar with Desert Island Discs on the BBC? No. Okay. They, they ask questions like this, too. And you're stranded on a desert island, or what books would you take? But they give you the Bible, and they give you the complete works of Shakespeare, because they know everybody's going to say those two things. So, <laughs> so assuming, uh, assuming the Bible and assuming the uh, complete works of Shakespeare— uh, I would probably have to say the the book that has made the most impact on my life is a book called Illusions by Richard Bach. And I'm actually looking at it right now because I read it about every year. And it is it's kind of flaky and new agey. But when you get down to it, it is essentially that we're all captains of our own ship. And that's not to mean, that's not to mean that we're secluded and it's all on us. But. If you're going to do something, do it, and you can make it happen. It, it's kind of the same message uh, from Coach Brown is that you can do anything you want to. You just really have to want it, and you really have to work for it. Because you know, that's, that's one of the sayings that's in the book. You are, you are never given a wish without the power to make it come true, period. But then it goes on, but you may have to work for it. You know, that's the whole point is, is that you just don't accept things that come to you if you want it, you, sometimes you have to go out and get it, and it 
maybe a slog, but if you want it bad enough, you can do it. Illusions by Richard Bach. Share something that you have purchased in the last 12 months, less than a hundred hours now that you enjoyed or has made your job easier. If I wanted a piece of equipment or a service or <laughs> an item to on Amazon or eBay that said, Jim Lanick, he likes it. I need one of these. What would it be? The AeroPress coffee maker. AeroPress coffee maker. All right. Yeah. It was 35 bucks. It's essentially a French press coffee maker, but instead of being self-contained, you, you press the coffee through the filter into your cup. And it sounds deceptively simple, but it makes a really good cup of coffee. It's easy. There's no moving parts. It's just a plunger with a filter on the end of it. I love it. Uh, because a lot of times I don't want to make a whole, I'm the only one in my house that drinks coffee. Uh-huh. The The beauty of this is it makes, I can make about two cups at a time and it's, it's perfect. It's better coffee than a, than a Keurig. So for people who like coffee and like good coffee, and you can take a camper, you know, there's no moving parts. You just need to be able to heat the water up somehow. I love it. Aeropress. So now we know you're a golf fanatic and a coffee fanatic. And interesting. It's made by the same people who invented the Aerobee. Remember the Aerobee, the big circular Frisbee? Yeah. With the hole in the middle? Uh-huh. Same guys. Now that's an interesting synergy. Frisbee's one day, coffee maker the next. If you had to do something else and you got fired today, what would you be doing? I would be working at a microbrewery brewing beer. That's my other hobby. I'm a home brewer. I would be brewing beer. Or keeping bees. That's a good question. Now, keeping bees, I did do that in fifth grade, sixth grade. My neighbors had bees. I just find them fascinating. If I Me had, too. If I had the chance to do it in my own neighborhood, I probably would try to do it. But my homeowners association does not allow beekeeping, per se, so can't do it. We tried, we tried in our backyard last year, uh, and it was going great. I missed a treatment, and they all absconded and i was left without bees this year but i think i would probably do be- i would do beer but then i would have beehives on the roof and i would make beer with the honey how about that well jim this has been a pleasure talking to you about bankruptcy and forensic accounting and fraud i really enjoyed it thank you so much if someone wanted to get in touch with you what would be the best way to get in touch with you email which is j lanick j-l-a-n-i-k at Waldrop LLP, W-A-L-D-R-E-P-L-L-P.com. Appreciate it, Jim. Thank you so much for your time. Good luck in your career as a uh, Chapter 7 bankruptcy trustee. Robert, it was, it was fun. I loved it.